0: Okay, welcome to the recitation. I'm delighted today is on the Bio Academy, which has a deep connection at multiple levels. So to intro the intro, um, from the Fab Academy, uh, George Church was visiting the Southland Technology Center Fab Lab and interested in kind of expanding beyond just classes at Harvard Medical School and it led to the idea percolating of a bioacademy and then that led to the idea and the name was initially a joke of the academy of almost anything or academy in response to the arrival of bioacademy and so that was the first class to spin off from fab academy and it's deeply connected at one level with the recursion of fab labs making bio labs and then at a much more fundamental level as biofabrication is digital fabrication at molecular scales, and eventually they're they're, um, joining. And so we've had a great team spinning it up with a a fabulous work group of organizers and faculty running it. And it runs starts in the fall, and so there's a natural flow starting from the Fab Academy to continue on uh, to that in the fall. So with that, I'll hand off to Jean-Michel.
1: Thanks, Neil. Um, so, I'm just going to talk briefly um, about how this thing started, and then I'll hand it off to, to David Kong, who is going to talk about uh, the faculty members. It's very interesting that, uh, you know, in Fab Academy, what you're all doing, it's, it's Neil teaching, but in Bio Academy, we have a, a huge group of people uh, from different universities and from uh, very, very interesting companies who are all in this field, who all teach uh, a class, so he'll be talking about that, and and um, hopefully uh, he'll have some time to talk about one of his classes that he teaches that's, that's very interesting. And then we'll go to Kate Aramala, who's going to talk about um, her class, which is on synthetic minimal cells. And so um, just to intro this, you're all doing Fab Academy, which is how to make almost anything, and one of the slides Neil always shows in the intro is this one. So you've all seen this one and the idea uh, is that you know you're you're somewhere between that uh, those two center images on the right where there's a, a whole collection of machines that allow you to make almost anything and that's getting cheaper and cheaper and that some of you already uh, are, are, are some of you are being enabled by this to make your own machines and make your own circuits now and um, eventually hopefully this will lead to something like the Star Trek replicator. Um, if we add biology to that. Uh, we can actually make equivalents. Uh, machines for reading and writing DNA, for instance, are getting cheaper as well. And there's already a lot of people doing the same kind of um, sort of a DIY experimental things that maybe a lot of you now in Fab Academy are doing with, let's say, machines and hardware and software, uh, but they're doing it with wetware and um, with living materials, with biology. And so, one of the questions arises like, what what is the end goal of that? If the Star Trek replicator maybe is the, um, one of the future visions of that uh, fab line in the middle, um, what could be a future vision of the biology? And I I put that uh, image from another sci-fi book uh, in the sense that I, yes.
0: Um, We're only, we're not seeing the, we're only looking at your first slide. Oh, are you moving slides
1: yeah I moved slides
0: um, um, I think you're only sh- you're sharing the we didn't see the graphics I think you're sharing the presentation w- you're sharing the keynote window but not the presentation window St- stay just stay in that window
1: can you just, see it you, now yeah but okay
0: we're on slide two now just stay in that window I think it was an issue in the screen share of the full screen okay
1: so are you on slide three now yeah. Okay, cool. So, uh, again, like the machines, I added them here on the right. So, this is a slide you know from Neil, and I added some biology here. Um, So, the the machines, again, for reading and writing DNA are getting cheaper, and the equivalent of that person making his own machine and making his own circuit uh, is also already happening, and a lot of people are are experimenting with biology uh, in their garages and sometimes even on themselves. Famously, someone streamed uh, um, on YouTube – a moment where they injected themselves with a um, a genetically engineered uh, system they made. So whether or not this is a good idea, you know, it's up for debate, but uh, we are really moving into a a future where even biology is getting accessible to all of you. And so that's also what part of BioAcademy is about. And so maybe that future astronaut, the person that goes into space, is not going to go into space in a vessel, but he's going to go into space because he or she can live in space. So um, one of the ideas is that we'll also have to start to genetically engineer ourselves to be able to survive, and this is one of the ideas that comes from uh, Juan Enriquez, who has written the book uh, *Evolving Ourselves*, which is extremely interesting. Um, he claims that basically we're we're a monoculture, and monocultures are 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 um, you know prone to not survive for very long. Um, and so, if if you have trouble believing this kind of future in biology, I, I recommend these three books to you. Um, and the middle one, *Regenesis*, is um, written mainly by George Church. And so George Church is sort of the uh, the brain behind the Bio Academy, and he really uh, works very closely with David and uh, and with me in, in trying to make that curriculum. And he is really the one who has this future vision of what it could be. So another way of looking at this is that you're currently basically working in this kind of stuff. You're in silicon, right? Uh, and so this is one of the... Two slides that I actually got from one of the lectures uh, from Bio Academy, from Joe Jacobson, and so he was showing here that in fab you go from the schematic design, you know, to a factory, to working chip, and then to a product. So the stuff you're currently working with doesn't really allow you to make an iPhone. Perhaps uh, you need, you know, large groups and companies who do VLSI to, to actually work on this. But it's becoming accessible. And similarly, in biology, um, we are starting to, as Neil said, digitize information. And we can go both ways. So we can digitize uh, biological information and sort of get it to a computer, but we can also start with digital information and then make biology with that. Um, In parallel, all the fab labs you're currently sitting in have all the equipment there to actually allow you to make the equipment to do biology. So you can make thermal cyclers, you can make centrifuges, you can make small microscopes. You can make uh, systems to separate DNA. Um, And so in this trend, the question is, you know, biology, traditionally, by a lot of people, is seen as being done in labs like this. It's very clean and people are wearing lab coats and it's all very formal. But more and more, we're going to people who are also experimenting in their garages and, um, um, you know, even on themselves. Similarly, again, um, and as Neil also said, The sort of the engineering side and the biology side are also getting closer into being able to do atomically precise things so Kate in in her lab in the Adamala lab will actually talk a little bit about prototyping biology whereas there's also people like the people from Zyvex labs who are working on on, in a way similar systems but they're just coming from a different side Um, they're coming from engineering and even if you look at engineering um, some of the biology actually more and more has um, images and components that maybe look familiar to you. So, in, in engineering and in the things you do, you could go to McMaster or to any kind of hardware store and you can buy nuts and bolts and, and parts and from those parts you put together machines um, and there's actually organizations like iGEM that are to a certain extent creating parts that you can then stick together uh, to create biological machines. So, even there, uh, it's getting closer and closer to the same kind of uh, paradigm. Um, I remember fondly when I was in uh, uh, in Shenzhen, and Neil and I went to the Beijing Genomics Institute, and they showed us this machine. And so, just for your reference, the first full genome uh, took about 2.7 billion US dollars in 91 US dollars and took 23 years to, to sequence. These machines can do full uh, two full sequences per day, so every 24 hours. And the machines will set you back about $250,000. So it's, it's pretty amazing how far we've come. And what's even more amazing is that about 90% of the parts that go in these machines are off-the-shelf parts. So imagine walking to a hardware store, buying a whole bunch of parts, and then making a couple of things yourself, and then putting together a machine that can actually read um, the human genome in 24 hours. So this also asks a lot of ethical questions, right? We were outside with the CEO, and... They have this big poster, my life in my hands. And so I poked him and said, it's, it's more like our lives in your hands, isn't it? And, and you know, he smiled and he giggled. Um, but so it, it, I think it's important also, like in Fab Academy and Bio Academy, we have sort of an open discussion about this. Um, and we're not there yet, right? So The Atlantic came out with an article saying, oh, a DNA sequencer in every pocket. Well, not quite uh, and not not really yet. But, again, it's one of those things where, we're getting closer to and that really links um, the Fab Academy and the Bio Academy, because it's, it's very much also about hardware and about making those kind of things. And then lastly, what's also interesting is that the things you're doing in Fab Academy need CAD software, so you need to design the parts you make and then you, sa- you send files to machines and then the, those machines will fabricate the thing that you designed in your computer. Well, similarly, there's actually people working on things like this, so this is called CAD Nano, where DNA in that uh, sequence is actually capitalized. Um, and what you do here is you design with DNA, which then allows you to, if you um, uh, synthesize that DNA, to create three dimensional structures, which are extremely tiny, obviously, um, but still we're able to uh, very precisely engineer in a, in a very similar way um, with living materials. So, what I found very interesting and exciting is that, you know, Fab Academy and Bio Academy allow us to educate people globally and that is really what we're trying to do we're trying to give more people access to this kind of information and because this kind of systems these kind of systems are becoming more and more accessible and cheaper and cheaper uh, it gets easier to work together on this and it's very important to keep an open discussion and for me it's one of the things that's going to merge so the the fab and the bio maybe at a certain point won't be really that easy to distinguish anymore uh, we're not there yet but it's it's somewhere where um, where we're going eventually. So, um, I'll leave it at that. And uh, David, if, if you can now share your screen, um, I'll be very happy to introduce David Kong, who's um, both running one of the labs, um, EMW, East meets West, um, close to here in Cambridge, who um, has a lot of bio academy students, and um, who is one of the faculty members. So, he's teaching one of the classes uh, that he'll be able to talk a lot about a little bit um yeah great
2: great thank you Jean-Michel uh just make sure are you seeing my screen right now yeah
1: I see DNA assembly in 3d printed fluidics
2: okay cool yeah awesome let me uh is this full screen right now it is let me see it okay cool great uh thanks so much Jean-Michel and uh yes
0: Um, If you put us on top, we're now seeing blue jeans on top of the slide.
2: Oh, my God. Sorry. There we go.
0: It helps to do your audio and video is great. It helps to have another screen, but your audio and video are fine.
2: Okay. Good. Good. Um, Yeah. So anyways, uh, uh, it's a real pleasure to be here. And and it's been a really amazing uh, journey over the past couple of years working with uh, George and Jean-Michel and all of the other uh, amazing faculty that are part of uh, a bioacademy and how to grow almost anything. And so... Um, you know, Jean Michel did an awesome job of kind of providing some of the, the context and you know, the comparison between um, where we are with fab and where we're going with bio. And um, this, uh, I will oh, let me just. Okay, good. And so, you know, one one quick comment uh, to make that I wanted to make too is is um, you know, I think right now with bio and Jean Michel kind of really did a nice job surveying a lot of the, the work. Um, you know, you, you see things sort of as uh, as as um, uh, kind of manifested in the, the bio foundry. So this is a, a photograph from Ginkgo Bioworks and uh, Patrick Boyle is one of our faculty and, and uh, um, the lead designer at uh, Ginkgo. And so, you know, wh- one comment I want to just, just uh, kind of make to contextualize some of where we are, um, you know, with, with bio, in, in many ways, uh, we are still in this sort of mainframe era, although it's rapidly transitioning uh, through a lot of the technology that we explore through the class into something more distributed, into something more accessible. And, and, you know, one, you know, this is a a slide from from Patrick. Um, You know, this is, uh, you know, kind of showing some of the early uh, flying machines. And, um, you know, there's a real significant period of of experimentation, a lot of trial and error to try to understand kind of the fundamental principles behind, uh, you know, how how, uh, flying machines ultimately would work. And, you know, now you can really just, you know, directly design and uh, manufacture a plane that will literally fly out of the aircraft via the, the, the kind of facility that it was built in and manufactured in. And in bio, you know, it's still early, right? So in, and in a way, it's, it's a really exciting opportunity as well. You know, with bio, we still have a lot to uh, unravel in terms of the first principles between, uh, behind, you know, how you actually design and, and uh, make and engineer living matter, which is, uh, you know, a really incredible, incredible challenge. And so, um, and so, you know, as Jean-Michel mentioned, right, uh, we're kind of shifting from a uh, bio appearing in places, uh, you know, like corporations and academic institutions um, to places like garages, right? So this is a, 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 an image from a Nature from a, a number of years ago, right around the start of this, this kind of global movement around do-it-yourself or do-it-together uh, biology. And so this is Rob Carlson, who's one of the, the folks that analyzes a lot of the, uh, the economic trends in biotech and uh, showing his own personal garage lab. So he's here with his, you know, autoclave and his PCR machine and his, uh, you know, he's got his broom and his, uh, you know, laundry machine all together in the same, the same uh, lab but you know the question is you know he proposes is uh, you know the era of garage biology is upon us do you want to participate and it's interesting you know a lot of folks that are in you know silicon valley for example are really excited about about this idea of distributed biotech you know they look at successes of uh, you know other things that have been made in garages and say hey you know this is a pretty exciting for what we can imagine for the future of bio uh, and just to give you a sense of you know kind of where we are even in, even with mit uh, you know, this is a, a photograph I took of Joey Ito, who's my boss at the Media Lab, and we were trying to do, uh, you know, get Joey excited about about uh, bio, and um, you know, who's really excited to do some some experimentation. And what happened was we actually couldn't find a lab at MIT that would allow Joey to come and do experiments. And you know, if you kind of put yourself in, in a, a you know the shoes of a of a of a professor running a lab at MIT, you might think, okay, well, you know, why am I gonna let this guy who's never, you know, have done any pipetting before or never done any work with cells, you know, into my lab? And it turned out we, we couldn't find a laboratory to let Joey do some really basic, you know, kind of genetic engineering techniques. So we ended up going to his house and doing it in his kitchen. And so it's a commentary, once, one, on the kind of accessible nature of bio, and two, uh, you know the fact that MIT is has been behind in the game in establishing a community bio lab, and uh, fortunately that's changing. Um, so in many ways, you all uh, in, in uh, Fab Academy and, and for Bio Academy are ahead of the game of even places like MIT. And so, so now, um, you know, part of what's happening around the world is the emergence of these really wonderful spaces. Um, you know, Gen Space in uh, Brooklyn, and I'm curious, uh, you know, if any of you have visited one of these community labs. Uh, but Space in Brooklyn, uh, BioCurious in Sunnyvale, these were some labs that were set up around 2009 and 2010. And globally, this was happening right around the same time as well. So Hacteria was doing a lot of stuff in uh, Asia and Europe. Um, and then throughout Europe, you're we starting to see some of these laboratories. And increasingly now, um, they're starting to emerge, you know, much like I think that what's happening with uh, um, the Fab FabLab uh, uh, network itself, you know, into some really amazing places. You know, we're seeing, uh, you know, public libraries in San Diego opening up their own uh, 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 biotech laboratories. Um, you know, there's mobile labs on, on buses. Um, you know, and again, this is a project probably very near and dear and familiar to you all in the Fab Lab network, uh, you know, the floating Fab Lab, which I think is one of the, you know, really beautiful, uh, you know, kind of visions for, uh, you know, where we can imagine uh, bio and bio labs moving to, right? And so, uh, Benno, who is, uh, I'm sure you all know, is, uh, was also one of their students in Bio Academy, And uh, um, Jean-Michel mentioned this as well, Uh, You know, the uh, iGEM, which is the International Genetically Engineered Machines Competition, is another wonderful kind of setting for for distributed uh, biotech. And so, you know, right now we've got hundreds of these these community labs that are emerging around the world. Um, We were very fortunate to have a gathering uh, at MIT this past September where we had, uh, for the first time, uh, uh, more than uh, 200 members of these uh, uh, folks that are setting up labs all around the world come and and talk about, uh, you know, kind of the future of, of distributed biotech. And so I show this here because just to say, you know, this was sort of, uh, you know, for for when thinking about a distributed bio, this was the the, the largest meeting that had ever been uh, kind of organized. But you know, this really pales compared to what you all are doing with with the Fab Academy, right? So, and actually, what's the final num- what's the number right now, Neil and Jean-Michel, on the current current number of Fab Labs around the world?
0: Oh, let's see. I I think it's approaching 1,500. Doubling time is has been about a year and a half.
2: Okay. I mean, that's incredible. And so, so part of, you know, for me, what's so exciting as a bio guy is that, you know, looking at this possibility of, you know, of really, really systematically trying to augment all of your fab labs with bio labs, right? I think, you know, the future of the fab.
0: I think that the the goal is not to have this many fab labs and that many bio labs, but just to have, it's the same thing, to have a network of capabilities.
2: Completely, and and I think, you know, I'm um, part of, for, for those of you that, that have Fab Labs, I think that being able to augment your, your the concept of make to kind of go beyond electrical, mechanical, and including the biological, it's just a natural in a way trend that's been happening pretty organically. And I think, you know, through through how to grow and through a bio academy, there's a real amazing opportunity to kind of ramp up and accelerate this transition. So I know George is extremely excited about about that scaling opportunity as well. And so to shift into the, the, the curriculum itself, um, So, we basically have over uh, the past uh, couple of iterations have really started to fine tune the, the curriculum and uh, and start to chunk it out into some in some into some really nice modules. So the first the first module of of Bio Academy is essentially what we call synthetic biology boot camp. So it's a real exploration of um, a lot of the kind of uh, principles that are built around synthetic biology, which in a phrase is about making biologic biology easier to engineer, but um, maybe in a sentence is. Is uh, mapping more rigorously uh, engineering principles onto biological systems, and so um, we start. Uh, at Bioacademy always oh, starts every single year uh, with uh, uh, kind of an overview of, of the course, but also an exploration of principles and practices. So, as uh, Jean-Michel mentioned, you know there's a lot of really important ethical issues and a lot of really important. Um, uh, kind of societal issues that we need to consider when, when thinking about uh, a future where biotech is increasingly more accessible and so Megan Palmer who is a, uh, um, a researcher at Stanford and is really one of kind of the leading thinkers and uh, doers in the areas of biopolicy um, and she gives a really amazing lecture to kind of kick off the course. And also, you know, again, the idea is to embed these, these principles and practices throughout the, the curriculum itself. So all of our faculty spend some time thinking in the context of their, their technical area, um, you know, kind of what are the, some of the key ethical issues that need to be uh, kind of uh, considered. And so um, as part of the first class as well, uh, you know, again, my technical expertise and background is in uh, uh, microfluidics, but also broader um, kind of instrumentation as it relates to, to bio. And so we, we uh, um, as part of the first class, I, I give a lecture on um, kind of the latest and greatest in bio hardware. And again, uh, you know, much like Fab Academy, you know, we, we always have a, an, we, and it's, this is really instituted this past year, um, uh, an experimental homework that links together the technical concepts from the class uh, with um, um, something hands on. And so we have you build in the first class uh, some type of bio hardware, um, which again, hopefully, is something that will enable your own community lab um, or your own fab lab. Um, and in the second class, uh, you know, George comes and gives a real tour de force on, uh, you know, kind of biodesign, diversity, and selection. Um, you know, this is uh, um, Charles Darwin. And, uh, um, you know, I hadn't noticed this before until Bio Academy, but, you know, this is George. So George is kind of like the, the chiral uh, Charles Darwin. Turns out, um, which is appropriate. George, George and Charles, I think, are definitely uh, historically linked for sure. Um, Can you so,
0: explain the gesture. I've never understood what it's showing.
2: <laughs> you know, you know what? I think somebody photoshopped this first one of Charles Darwin. This is this is not Charles Darwin's actual hand, and then I just had George take a picture with it. But this is sort of just like hi. I, I don't even I think I was it's never seen... sure
0: if that was photoshopped or just. Uh, this one is a, definitely photoshopped
2: over time. Yeah, I realize this, but but this one of George is not. This is this is authentic George Church right here. Uh, and so, um, uh, you know, after George kind of lays down the fundamentals of, of, uh, of biodesign and, uh, you know, a lot of the basics of the course, and again, as part of the homework here, we do a lot of really fundamental molecular biology. So you learn about gel electrophoresis, polymerase chain reactions, some some really fundamental kind of core, uh, um, uh, you know, skills that you need to do bio. And then from there, we shift over into, uh, into DNA, into the world of DNA. So um, Joe Jacobson, who is, uh, was actually my PhD advisor at the Media Lab, um, and has done a lot of pioneering work thinking about um, DNA synthesis, so specifically, you know, this and this is again, DNA synthesis is one of the core fundamental technologies that's driving the biotech revolution today, being able to design in a computer, a completely arbitrary, um, you know, de novo sequence of DNA, which could be used, and which we teach you how to use essentially to reprogram uh, organisms. Uh, um, in the context of the course. So so DNA synthesis, again, is, uh, you know, both how to design it and how to construct it is uh, um, the key um, kind of set of concepts in Joe's class. And from there, um, once you kind of learn how to manipulate DNA, um, we teach you how to actually engineer organisms to make stuff. And so um, here, again, I mentioned uh, Patrick Boyle, uh, he's kind of like the, you know, the Johnny Ives of of, uh, synthetic biology. Um, um, He leads uh, Ginkgo's design team and, and uh, Patrick really does an amazing job of explaining the fundamentals of biodesign and organism engineering. So Ginkgo Bioworks, which is the company that, he, that um, Patrick is one of the, uh, the key um, kind of team members for, um, is at the forefront of, of engineering organisms to make all kinds of interesting uh, molecules that right now are focused more kind of in flavors and fragrances, but increasingly they've been exploring, uh, you know, materials, fuels, uh, therapeutics, and so on. And so one of the kind of, you know, and, and Neil, both Neil and Jean-Michel mentioned this, you know with biology you have a, the, the opportunity to make these really atomically pre- precise uh, materials and uh, and um, artifacts and you know ultimately living organisms and so uh, you know ginkgo in many ways is at the forefront of that and particularly thinking about metabolic engineering right? which is one of the big big areas so after we kind of learn about um, how to how to hack organisms in this course um, we then shift over into sensing, right? So part of the idea is now that you're kind of engineering organisms to manufacture different molecules, how do we ultimately detect their presence? And so uh, Vatsen Raman, who's uh, from uh, the University of uh, Wisconsin, Madison, teaches a really amazing course on protein engineering. Um, so here again, we land into some of the fundamentals about how proteins fold. Uh, what are some of the in silico tools that you need to actually design proteins? And then how would you actually uh, engineer a protein that could be used as a sensor to detect a small molecule. And so this is kind of a nice, uh, you know, again, uh, design, build, and test. This is starting to shift into the test area of of bio. Um, And again, you know, we've been working up until this point primarily in uh, in cells. And so uh, with the next class, and again, Kate will will go into greater technical detail in a moment. Uh, You know, we're really privileged to have Kate, uh, you know, who's one of the world uh, experts thinking about um, Uh, Synthetic minimal cells talk about how to kind of take all the different components that you find in cells, but package them and uh, kind of create this synthetic system from which you can prototype uh, biology effectively. And so, and again, another thing you see with bioacademy is this kind of increasing complexity as we go forward uh, throughout the course. So as we kind of shift from from the synthetic systems, um, in the the next class, um, I give a lecture on the gut microbiome and and the microbiome broadly. So, and I'll spend just a little bit of time on this at the very end. Um, But again, you know, kind of moving from um, kind of monoculture and um, a kind of individual uh, cellular communities to then, uh, you know, communities of organisms and increasingly complex communities of organisms like what you find in the gut. Um, So this kind of first seven classes, again, explores the spectrum of, you know, kind of design, build and test into, you know, kind of increasingly sophisticated uh, um, single celled uh, organisms. And from there, we shift into a second module uh, called biofabrication and imaging. So now we're starting to work with, uh, you know, manufacturing and um, uh, working materials that that have a kind of more um, that are sh- are moving from the molecular into the macro. And so uh, in this following class, uh, you know, Fienzo Amanetto, who is uh, um, again Jean-Michel's colleague at Tufts. Uh, teaches a wonderful class on bioprinting, and Jean Michel also contributes to this course. Uh, again, looking at um, silk as a, as a building material uh, from which you can apply again uh, some concepts that you probably explore in um, in Fab Academy, like like bioprinting, right? So 3D printing, but except using biological materials, and this is where, we, where again where we start crossing over uh, into uh, some of the hardware aspects uh, connected with with fabrication. Um, and shifting from this class, uh, you know, Nina Tandon. Uh, who is one of the again world pioneers in looking at tissue engineering? Um, teaches a wonderful class uh, called synthetic developmental biology, where again she uh, in this particular year this is the first year where we uh, really looked a lot at cartilage, um, but she teaches us a lot of the principles behind um, kind of how to operate bioreactors and how to um, ultimately culture different types of complex tissues um, inside different types of bio hardware. So again, kind of connecting the uh, uh, these incubator culture systems with uh, with tissue engineering, um, and so and and so. Part of the idea here is, you know, after you've gone through classes in 8, eight and 9, you now have some materials that are, are kind of the appropriate scale that are really good for imaging. And so we teach this kind of as a combined fab plus imaging unit, um, where, again, we're, we're really, really privileged to have a number of the kind of world innovators in developing some of the uh, kind of more sophisticated uh, imaging technologies join us for class. So um, here we have Kevin Doherty, who is, uh, again, one of uh, George Church's previous students who now has spun out um, a company to explore this area called the fluorescence in situ sequencing, or FISSEQ, which is a very sophisticated um, uh, imaging technology, which allows you to kind of uh, look at uh, um, in, in depth into a cell and uh, image all of its, its components and particularly, uh, you know, even, even being able to sequence uh, the presence of, of, of a certain nucleic acids that are, that are floating around inside the cell. And so coupled with FISIC is another really uh, kind of powerful enabling technology that was developed by um, uh, our colleague at uh, the Media Lab at MIT, Ed Boyden, um, called expansion microscopy. Uh, some of you may have heard about it, but it's a, it's a really wonderful technique that it's a very simple idea. But the idea is, you know, you know we have a kind of a diffraction and imaging limit in, in optics. So instead of trying to get the optics better, uh, you know, why don't we just expand the sample? And so Ed has uh, developed some really, really nice technology that enables uh, even uh, kind of community laboratories and those that too much resource to actually uh, kind of expand different types of uh, samples so that you can image them. Uh, and, and again, you know, one of the one of the things that we explored this year was using uh, tools like the Foldscope, scope, which again is a is a, is a really a, a wonderful uh, tool that was developed by, uh, you know, one of our colleagues at Manu Prakash from the, from, uh, uh, the Media Lab and now at Stanford. So again, uh, you know, really important the, uh, kind of coupling a lot of the hardware and including kind of low cost more accessible hardware uh, with some really uh, kind of cutting edge imaging techniques. And so as a part of this, you know, one of the, the really neat things that you can image and also fabricate on the uh, kind of more molecular scale are DNA nanostructures. So again, uh, kind of leveraging uh, the programmability of DNA. Uh, and again, as Jean-Michel showed with the, uh, um, uh, with the software tool CADnano, you can actually make really sophisticated molecular machines that uh, involved uh, kind of three-dimensionally folded uh, DNA. So, um, you know, one of our challenges this year, and, and, you know, we're we're just starting the process of grading the homework. Um, One of the cool uh, new experimental homeworks that we had this year was actually trying to leverage some of the optics. And again, we had the students build um, their own kind of low-cost fluorescence microscopes and actually be able to image for the first time, like using expansion and low-cost microscopy, um, DNA nanostructures. So, you know, if we actually get any of this to work, this would be, a, you know, it would be a, a, in its own right a, a paper that uh, all of the uh, kind of faculty in this module would be really, really excited to see. So, and again, just to say as well, um, you know, this was a, a real kind of big advance for this year's Bio Academy. Um, we actually, uh, you know, had uh, all of the students, um, um, ha, you know, kind of manipulate and work with their own, with their own DNA origami in their own labs. So, um, you know, again, one of the, the things that's occurred with BioAcademy as we evolved over time is ensuring that we have these uh, um, experimental homeworks that are also kind of coupled. So you can see from the, fir- the first set of classes from the, uh, um, the synthetic biology module, you know, in the, in the DNA synthesis class, you're making structures that ultimately uh, get used in the bioproduction class to produce molecules that could, sense to, that could get sensed in the biosensor class. So on, so, so this has kind of been an evolution over time, so, you know, you're joining BioAcademy at, at the right at the right time because we've really kind of helped to streamline a lot of this experimental process over the past couple of years. So, um, after um, the DNA and nanostructures course, um, for the, the final couple of classes, um, uh, we, we, uh, we have this uh, kind of quick module on genome engineering. In a way. So, uh, you know, we call Darwin in two weeks. Um, this is actually reversed, uh, uh, Kevin's normally last, we had to reverse them this year for scheduling, but um, normally what we like to have uh, before Kevin Esvelt is uh, George and John uh, Glass uh, come together and teach a class on genome engineering. So um, John Glass, uh, you know, for those of you that do not know, is part of the, uh, the J. Craig Venture Institute, uh, which has been at the forefront of developing um, really the... the the, the fundamental technologies both behind DNA um, sequencing reading DNA but also uh, manipulating genomes being able to synthesize entire genomes from scratch figuring out how to boot up organisms and so on so um, you know it's really just a you know a, an incredible group of faculty and, and John uh, you know of course is, is um, really one of the pioneers in, in um, just how to manipulate and work with genomes and so um, the kind of you know final class um, is uh, you know kind of bringing this all together is a Kevin Esfeld uh, on gene drive so Um, For those of you that have not heard of what a gene drive is, a gene drive is a particular application of the CRISPR-Cas9 technology, which hopefully you've heard of by now, which is a very precise genome editing technology. And what Kevin has really helped to pioneer along with George is this notion of uh, leveraging CRISPR-Cas9 as a way to drive an inheritable trait on that again that you you, uh, uh, can design and basically um, leveraging CRISPR as a way to um, kind of um, uh, push, a, push a wild, uh, push this engineer trait through a wild population of organisms and uh, um, doing it through sexual reproduction. And so this is a, a gene drive which has applications, uh, you know, really that, that are kind of at the, the frontier of imagining how you could even engineer a whole ecosystem. Right. And so Kevin um, is, is, is and, and this particular class I think is a really nice intersection between um, both the uh, the biology so you know again learning about uh, this really amazing application of CRISPR but then thinking about the societal impacts and the, the ramifications of it, right, um, which again I think is a, is a really key part and something that I'm, I'm really excited about as we kind of enable more, more fab labs to have a bio capability, um, you know, it's an important, uh, you know, discussion that we need to be kind of having in a really rigorous uh, way and, and Kevin does a really remarkable job of helping to kind of shape and uh, lead this, this discourse as well. Hey, so,
1: David? Yes. Um, we, we, we should move to Kate soon. So i okay. uh, will uh, try yeah, and wrap
2: it up, then we have some
1: time for questions.
2: Yeah, this is basically it. Um, the last thing I'll just show, you know, is just a couple of pictures of, you know, all of us. Uh, you know, again, we have a really wonderful time with the course. Um, and uh, just to give you an, a sense of a couple of the final projects from this year, just to give you a flavor of some of the student projects, this is a really neat one from uh, Joan. Uh, from uh, Fab Lab in Lima and uh, you know this is a the idea here is a biosensitive tattoo which has a hydrogel and some engineered organisms in there and uh, and basically you know they can respond to uh, um, you know stimulus from um, uh, secretions from the skin. Uh, this was a neat uh, example of a project from Yi Xiao um, who was at in our community lab um, looking at this kind of a kit behind this a living color palette. So this is a, a, a set of tools that you could use for, for in an educational context um, uh, so a biopaint handbook and kind of a, um, a set of engineered organisms that can be used for art. Um, again, it's some hardware. So this is an example of a, of a uh, 3D um, kind of syringe extruder that you can use with a bioprinter. Um, and again, some more sort of traditional, maybe uh, biotech analyzing uh, organisms in different conditions. That and again, these are organisms valuable to uh, kind of the local community there in uh, Fab Lab Lima. And I'll close here, you know, just by saying, you know, George, um, you know, working with George, it's, it's a, just a real amazing privilege. And, and just, you know, he, he truly is one of the, um, you know, kind of major figures in and not just biotech, but technology and society at large. So, you know, I really, uh, you know, I can't underscore the opportunity to really be able to work uh, and, and uh, um, uh, participate in a class that's taught by George. So really, you should jump on this opportunity. And George is teaching, uh, you know, it's a subject of this book called Woolly, which is, uh, I don't know if any of you have heard about this book. It's in the bookstores now, but it's a... Uh, um, uh, a book that um, is exploring George's lab's efforts to de-extinct the woolly in Mammoth is being turned into a, a huge movie. So George is going to be a, kind of a movie star as well next year. It's gonna, the movie's going to come out. They're looking at some actors like, uh, you know, Jeff Bridges potentially to play George. I think it's a pretty good choice. And then, uh, you know, even Tom Hanks is another one of the major options to play George. So, uh, you know, so so join Bioacademy, you know, not just for the technology, but also, you know, to potentially be part of the, uh uh, the Woolly and, and George Church uh, global movement that will explode on screens uh, next year. So, so that's uh, that's what I have. And if we have time in the end, I can explain some of the hardware and, and the, uh, uh, the microbiome stuff. But for now, why don't we turn it over to Kate to talk about uh, her work? Thanks, Thank David. Yeah, no problem. I'll
3: try to share my screen.
0: good, we see turtles.
3: And we you do. Should be seeing my screen now?
1: It's great, um, yeah, I can see turtles in a broken bio.
3: That's good enough to start. Uh, I want to give you um, a little preview of one class that um, we teach during the bio academy and how that kind of connects to what you guys have been doing and what you actually know, which is real old-fashioned engineering, shouldn't say old-fashioned. The class I'm teaching is, um, it used to be called cell-free bioproduction. We kind of expanded it to cover basically the entire field of synthetic cells. And before I get into details of what synthetic cells are and um, why do we care, I would like to kind of tie it with what all of you know and all of you have been always doing, which is the classical engineering. And if you are an engineer, you have a set of parts, set of very different parts, and you want to go after one function. And there are different ways to go after that function using completely different parts. You can swap the parts. What we've been doing as biologists for the last, we, the, the royal we of the community for the last about 50 years is we've been trying to do the same with biology. We've been trying to take biological elements and swap parts and build new things out of those known and irregular cells. And that's the goal of bioengineering and that's the goal of what we're trying to teach during this class is how to engineer biology, how to make new things out of biology. And the way people have been going about it for the last, most for the most of the time that this field existed, is in two ways. Either you take the live cells and you try to control them and change stuff in them, or you try to do it on a really tiny scale in a more like a prototyping scale where you take in vitro experiments which means you purify your components and you mix them together and you look for new functionalities. And there are advantages and disadvantages of both of those approaches. Again, like in engineering, if your scale is smaller, it's easier to do it, it's easier to control it, it's easier to analyze what you have. But to do something really interesting, you have to do it on a scale of a whole organism because otherwise it's not going to be relevant. So what we're doing, what my field and people in my lab are doing is we're trying to find a happy middle between those two kind of techniques and approaches. We want to be more complex than in vitro experiments but more controllable than whole cell experiments. So we basically build our own cells to do it. We build those semi kind of organisms that we call synthetic minimal cells, which are, and I will go into that in details in a second, um, are basically bags of lipids containing some, but not all elements of live cells. And the reason we bother with making cells if we can get perfectly good cells from nature The reason we bother with building our own cells is for two kind of a different classes of applications. We're inherently scientists, and for most of you who would take that class, you're driven by curiosity. So we want to study life. We want to see what can we do with life, how can we modify life. And we're also, at least my lab, we're also trying to be a little bit practical and find the ways to pay bills. So we're using those synthetic cells as bio biotechnology and biomedical discovery tool. So Another question is, what are synthetic cells? Um, this is very hard to define, and I actually spent quite a bit of time during our class trying to define what are cells, what are, what are live cells, what are synthetic cells. Basically, the working definition could be, oops, that synthetic cells are everything that's made in the lab and not coming from a generation of other live cells. This is the working definition that the field is using right now. And depending on who you ask, people will tell you synthetic cells are this or that. Um, We define synthetic cells as bioreactors that have some but not all functions of live cells. So basically anything that you look at it and oh, it kind of looks like a cell, but it didn't come from live cellular ancestors, we can call that synthetic cell. And in our cells, What we do is we make proteins from genes inside a membrane. I'll go into details of a few of those subsystems in a moment, but the main kind of take home message and the main thing that I'm trying to teach in that class and the main thing that I'm trying to convince people why this is worth doing is because you have a system that's complex, that's more than the sum of its parts, which is one of the kind of a more broad definitions of life, but the system is still simple enough that you can understand it and you can control it. So in a way, this is the ultimate bioengineering. We have a biological entity that we actually know what's inside it. We can understand every single process inside it and we can control every single process inside it. An example of some of the things that we can control and things that we um, discuss in details during this unit of the class is all of those biological subsystems that make a living organism. So we can control size and composition of the compartment of those synthetic cells, which is something you cannot ever do in uh, natural cells. We can control what genes are inside in a way, kind of how we program that circuits inside that synthetic cell. We can control um, what proteins and what, RNA go in there, and how do we make proteins? And the fun thing about the system and what attracts me to it as a chemical engineer is that you can basically put it together from independent parts, from parts that have independent origins. So in a way you can think of it as a life, as a jigsaw puzzle. You can build your synthetic cell from components that are different and unrelated. And this is really attractive to uh, most people doing biological engineering is we can take parts from different unrelated organisms and put it back together into a synthetic cell. For most of you who have background in engineering, that sounds kind of like a basic principle of engineering. You can take unrelated parts and put them back together. But it's not always, a lot of the time, that's not true in biological engineering, the classical biological engineering, where you, if you want to take, let's say, a gene from one kind of an organism and put it in another organism and make it work. <laughs> feedback. I muted and unmuted myself, um, is that okay now?
1: Yeah, I think someone unmuted and sent a lot of feedback.
3: Okay, you're okay, fine. Um, let's keep going. Um, yeah basically life made of jigsaw puzzles take whatever you want from different organisms put it back together and see what happens and this kind of playing with biology on the level that we couldn't do before is something that we as a field of researchers working on synthetic life are really excited about but this is also something that can be excited for everyone who wants to start doing biology Um, in a second i'll show you why this is especially well suited for community biolabs and for people doing um, their own kind of generic engineering getting started to do it. Uh, to relate it to what you know and what you're actually used to be doing, a lot of the time we think about synthetic cells as the way to breadboard biology. You can take parts that have no business belonging together, put them together and see what happens. And the see what happens element is something that natural biological engineers have a lot of trouble with. and another kind of a shortcut that our technology helps solving. If you do any biological engineering, you're working with live cells, and the thing about live cells is that they're they're very different. Every cell is just a little bit different. So when you read any signal from live cells, it ends up being super noisy. And if you have a background in engineering or if you just want to see your results clearly, no matter what your background is and what you're trying to achieve, this can be super annoying because you're looking at all of those live cells and each of them gives you just a tiny little bit different signal so it's super noisy at the end. With synthetic cells, because they're all identical, we consider them an ensemble. So all synthetic cells that we make in one experiment will end up being identical. So you can measure signal from your experiment with very little background And that comes really handy when you actually want to measure something, when you want to do your experiment and measure a change. Working with synthetic cells, the change coming from your experiment, expression of a protein or detection of a certain signal is much clearer than if you do it in live cells. And um, just to give you an example, uh, we always have those experimental homeworks that David showed um, a few examples of um, at the end of his talk. One of the homeworks I think last year or a year before was people build um, a sensor based on selfie protein expression in synthetic cells and compare the efficiency of that sensor for, for a small molecule with sensors from live cells. So basically they've done what I'm showing here on this slide. They had a change measured in an experiment and it was much clearer to see that if you were using a synthetic cell system. The things that we put together to make a synthetic cell that's kind of a Biggest part of the course is to show you what goes in there. And at the point when this class happens, you've already went through the earlier classes explaining what's how genes get expressed, what's protein synthesis, what are ribosomes, and how do you build your own genetic circuits. So what we do is we tell you to forget what you um, learned in those first few classes and imagine doing all of that without a live cell. So we're using this system called cell-free protein expression, which is basically making proteins using components that are purified from live cells. And the simplest way of doing it is you take a cell, we always have to start with the natural products, but we purify it, so we know exactly what goes inside that system. And at this point, at the point when we're doing our experiment, we we don't have cells anymore, nothing is alive, we only have those purified components. So like simple elemental building blocks of life that are not by themselves alive. And we put them back together and we look for proteins, we look for interactions between those proteins, and we look for making small molecules. And those cell-free protein expression systems um, are a super powerful natural tool. The reason I'm talking about it in detail too is it's one of the easiest ways to get into bioengineering if you don't have a big lab, if you just want to do it um, in your garage or, in, or on your kitchen table. There is a lot of full biological experiments that can be done without having a even BSL-1 lab. If you use the Selfie Protein Expression System you don't have to worry about um, setting up the bios- proper biosafety level um, protections for your lab because you don't have a light cell. So you can do you can express proteins from all domains of life in that cell free system so for example you could express a human protein that would normally require a bsl2 kind of lab in a cell free system and as if you go to the course you would learn from megan how to do it safely and how to do it um, in a kind of a most efficient and uh robust way
0: uh kate okay, 10 and minutes left we should get to q a yep uh
3: just a few more slides um Another thing is we put um, our, we need a compartment, so we put our synthetic cells inside a lipid membrane. I'm showing you that slide to give you an example of the level of detail into which that class goes. We never go into too much chemistry, too much biochemistry. This is pretty much as far as we're going to get in terms of going through structures and going through details. We're showing you what the membranes of synthetic cell are made of and how um, why we use those compounds and not others, and what other people do to encapsulate their synthetic cells. And so going back to the slide I've shown you before, um, we're taking cells apart and basically putting, back, putting them back together into this new synthetic cell. And some of the reasons we're doing it um, are things that we're gonna focus on during the class. We're describing it as a technology, as this new technology of making Living processes in a highly controllable and highly reproducible way. We don't need to set up a BSL-2 kind of lab to express human proteins. That's really interesting for from the bio point of view. Uh, during the class we usually go through the general uh, science applications of those synthetic cells. We're, we're showing you um, what other people have done and why this is interesting. And then we go into details of applications to give you an idea for your own application. The whole point of this class is to show you what synthetic cells are and what can you do with this, with synthetic cells in your own lab. And whatever, however complex that lab is, however well set up, if you just started doing, um, do-it-yourself bio experiments, or maybe if you have a really well set up community lab, there's kind of different levels of complexity of synthetic cell experiments that you can do. And I want to stop here. and kind of leave you with this idea that you can make your own cells. Most of the time, they're not going to be alive, but you've made them. They have most properties of live cells, and you can do a lot of cool stuff with it. If you're interested in basic science, you can invest, you can build cells that kind of resemble primitive cells. You can study the origin of life. You can study space biology. We use synthetic cells to figure out how life could could look um, if it originated on different planets. If you're more into practical applications, you can use them for biomanufacturing, for biosensing, for um, building custom genetic circuits. This is something that my lab is doing and um, a lot of the bioacademy people were asking questions about homework related to that because that's kind of, relates to your background in engineering, we can build circuits, genetic circuits made of uh, genes, expressed, and proteins inside those synthetic cells. And then we can kind of a segue into this field of living technologies where you interface natural cells, synthetic cells, and then devices that read out or provide input into those natural systems. And that would be it. Okay. Um, And I would be happy to take questions later.
0: Good, So, so thank you. John, michel David, let's open up for Q&A. And if I could, let me start with a, a framing question, which is, this might sound like a big step. So how do students join BioAcademy and how do labs become BioAcademy sites?
1: Yeah, so um, all that info is on bio.academy.org. So you're showing that page. Uh, so there's a student's page there where all the information for new students is found. Um, and if you go to more info, um, at the at the top, there's also information about participating labs. So there's not uh, the list of labs this year is not yet uh, completely defined. We're we're uh, as David said earlier, we're actually currently grading uh, last um, iteration students. But uh, if you want to sign up as a lab, you can currently already contact us and we can put you on the list. Um, as Kate mentioned, there are some um, different kind of structures of labs, so you don't have to have a, a BSL, a BSL-2 lab for instance, but you do need some specific equipment. So you just you don't need just a fab lab, you need some specific equipment for biology. Um, but we, we have lists and um, also just so you know, there's a, a much bigger team obviously than just the three of us um, in different parts of the world who are working on this and who are actually uh, making sure that all the information is available. So Neil, so if you could go start? to, sorry? When does it start? Um, when does it start? Very good question. So the schedule is already it fixed for this year. I'm just picking my agenda so I can give you the exact dates. And we're gonna start the 12th, uh, 12th of September. So that's a Wednesday. So just like Fab Academy, uh, Bio Academy happens on Wednesdays, 9 a.m. EDT, um, and we're starting 12, uh, 12th of September. It goes all the way through to the beginning of December, and then the final presentations are in the beginning of February. So we actually give students about a full month to do the final project Um, because in Fab Academy, it's much easier to get components. It's much um, easier to do things in a week. In Bio Academy, sometimes you need to grow stuff, and growing stuff takes a little bit longer, so we give you a little bit longer to grow things uh, in your lab. Uh, So that's the schedule
0: questions
1: from anyone? Uh, Hey, this is Greg at the Dassault Fab Lab in uh, Waltham. Go ahead. Um, I'm wondering if you guys have given any thought to risk management uh, as it relates to bioengineering, like either accidental uh, synthetic biology that gets out of control, like uh, thinking about the breadboard and put components together and then see what happens. What if something happens bad? Um, or um, I'm all about democratizing access to this stuff, but um, what about uh, malicious actors uh, you know, taking the course and learning how to do things that could potentially be harmful to a lot of people?
2: So, so maybe I can, oh, David, yeah, go ahead. So there, there are a couple of uh, layers to that. So you know, one I think is, um, you know, again, basically everything we're teaching you in this class and also essentially you know, what you would find in, in any one of these community labs. Um, the the stuff that we're doing is incredibly safe. It's um, you know as Jean Michel and um, and Kate have mentioned um, there's something called uh, biosafety levels which are are defined actually by NIH which is the National Institutes of Health in the U- health in the U S. and um, and everything that we do is is what's called biosafety level one. And so this is coming. This is a quote from Sam Lipson who's the uh, the director of the uh, Cambridge. Um, a health department. So he manages all of biotech in Cambridge, Massachusetts, which is one of the biggest, you know, kind of biotech hubs in the world. Um, and his quote talking about some of the work that we do in our community lab is, you know, the stuff that you, kitchen biology is basically more dangerous, like the, the, literally the raw meat that you bring home from the kitchen has more pathogens in it than the stuff you would work with in the context of our class. Which is, you know, again, the most sophisticated stuff. You know, the, you know, again, we have a class where we do some stuff with cartilage, which is pretty cool. But again, almost everything you're doing is working with, um, you know, yeast, bacteria, um, um, other kind of very common strains of single cell organisms. So, so the safety level is, you know, it's very safe. The other comment that I would make, I think, similar to what you, you you're describing, or, or maybe what happens with fab labs as well. But in general, um, these the, the community labs are set up in a way where the projects are done. Um, in an open setting. So there, there's actually a lot of, um, of kind of a, a cultural inertia within the labs themselves so that, um, and again, most labs as well have some type of a um, protocol, a process where again, you're not just kind of doing random work anywhere. Um, you know, There is some type of a, a process where, where, and again, in Cambridge, we're, we're required to do this. There's, so, uh, and, and this is actually one of the interesting parts about the class. In many ways, the classes is at the forefront of kind of helping to shape how some of this this work gets regulated, because the regulations are very different where we are throughout the world. So one thing that Megan has done a really awesome job of, and again, Megan also heads the uh, principal and practices at at iGEM, which is the biggest distributed educational kind of network around synthetic biology. And we basically are kind of tracking the global regulations around safety for all of the stuff that gets done. And part of, you know, what we're doing in a way, too, is, is trying to set an example. So that's a big thing that we really focus on because, you know, even if you had all of the best, uh, you know, kind of uh, law enforcement or whatever, so much of this comes from the culture of how we set up our labs, how we do safety, how we think about this work so that, you know, we're really kind of doing it in as a responsible and ethical way as possible. And we try to build that into the course the best that we can.
1: And as many of you know, there's the, the FAB charter, and so the FAB charter explains like, what can you do in a FAB lab and how should you do it? And it really creates, I think, this open discussion that we all keep talking about things instead of doing it sort of in secrecy. And we're actually, uh, Kate is one of the people also working on this, we're actually creating, a, trying to create a charter for BioLabs. So something that we could also share with all the community labs and say, you know, you don't, you don't have to sign anything to become part of this, but if you want, you can put this in your space, to tell people who come into that space to sort of stick to those rules and make sure that we do things that are ethically correct and that you know don't put anyone in harm or put yourself in harm. Um, and so, instead of making it sort of secret, you know, uh, doing things in uh, behind closed doors, we're actually trying to open it globally so we all talk together.
0: Um, those are thoughtful answers. Uh, David, talk about the class you're doing at MIT and then how it relates
2: to bioacademy. Sure, so I'm teaching a class with uh, Professor George Jacobson at MIT called Biolab of the Future, and, and it very much connects uh, with, uh, with Bio Academy. So the idea is again kind of an exploration of uh, the evolution of the biolab from foundries to desktop labs, to labs on a chip, to open source labs, you know, and it's great. In the class we ask, ask each, uh, you know, kind of lecture what they, how they define the biolab of the future, and some say the biolab of the future is your computer. You know, Manu Prakash would say the biolab of the future is your backyard. Right? So, so there's kind of a, you know, and instead, why are we bringing the, the backyard to the lab? We should bring the, the lab to the backyard. So, so I think there's a, you know, there's right now, we're in this historical moment where bio, I think, is being explored in so many different ways and really exciting ways. And for me, you know, Fab Academy and, and what you all are doing at the Frontier of Fabrication, bringing bio just as another kind of tool into this incredible toolkit you're developing, is, is just a really organic kind of flow of what making is all about. And so I think, um, you know, you all have this incredible opportunity to be at the forefront of helping to shape, uh, you know, the future of manufacturing and how we work with uh, with bio, connected with all of this other wonderful uh, engineering technology we've been learning about. Yeah,
0: I and think. that threshold's really low. Bio labs, um, c- you know, traditional bio labs spend a lot for equipment that doesn't work well. And what goes into it is skills that you're learning in this class. It's just not that hard to do that recursion, it's much more accessible than it might sound from a distance. Indeed. Good. Um, Just about out of time, any final questions?
3: Yeah, hi, this is Emily, also from Diso.
0: Okay, go ahead.
1: Um, So I actually studied biomedical engineering at Tufts, so I know Fio
3: Almaneto, um, and hadn't really appreciated that the same thing that's happening in fab labs is happening with bio. In this distributed
2: network that's growing, um, but I guess I wanted to hear a little bit about your
3: thoughts of the, the limitations and challenges, especially with um, contamination with cells. I can see I could see that being an issue in kind of a community-based setting. Um,
2: yeah, just quickly. I mean, I, I think uh, cleanliness is, uh, is is something that is just a, a fundamental part of lab operations. So. Um, you know, again, this is, a, again, going back to kind of cultural settings of how you set up your own lab, but for sure, um, you know, for your lab to function well, you, you definitely need a well-managed space. Uh, I would say that as part of that.
0: But I, I would pick up on, um, in the, it, it's easy to sort of not see the history. In the early days of Fab Labs, they were all a mess and didn't know what they were doing. And it, it's matured. In the same way, lots of both community biolabs and fab labs started biohacking, but everyone was different and they were all kind of floundering. And so part of what's emerging <laughs> in bioacademy is that same sense of coordinating and sharing best practices. And I, the first few cycles of bioacademy sort of floundered. It was like, how do you, like sort of, how do you teach this stuff? Um, and it's really nice to see how it's beginning to mature where, one lab alone just doesn't have the skills to do it. You really need to kind of coordinate best practices in this way.
1: And and I think beginning is the right word there. Um, (laughs) Bioacademy is still, let's say, less structured maybe than Fab Academy is, but that's good because it's still being shaped, and it shouldn't be shaped just by, like, one university or one person. It should be shaped by this global collection of people because, as David very correctly noted, like, You know, the regulations in Japan and in um, India and here in the U.S. are are very different. And so instead of all being in our own space, it's very interesting to try and work together and make it clear to everyone and eventually via people like Megan, also, um, you know, people in government, people who make the rules uh, to, to help everyone understand what the potential dangers are, but also what the potential benefits are of working on these things in a more open manner. And that's, I think, what's part of Bioacademy.
0: Yeah, in Fab Academy, if something works 9 out of 10 times, it's a disaster and I have to find what's wrong. In Bioacademy, if something works 1 out of 10 times, it's a great success. And in fact, um, let's see, Jean-Michel, you, you had showed like um, uh, standard bio parts and, you know, composition and modularity. I think people like Tom Knight who runs Ginkgo started out with that idea of they're going to bring it to biology. And in the end, they've been humbled and they've sort of had to abandon that and think much more like biologists and learn to master biology on its terms, not to turn it into our terms.
1: Yeah. And I think, I think both biology, biology can learn some things from engineering, but engineering should also learn a lot from biology. And so what's cool is that we have, uh, more and more people who did both Fab Academy and Bio Academy, and I think you know those people will really not only have a skill set, but also have an understanding and a view of the world that's actually going to really shape um, how we we make and grow stuff in the future. So um, the combination of both is what what excites me most in a way.
0: And it really is all digital fabrication; it's bits to atoms and atoms to bits. Good. Lovely session, um, and maybe hopefully some of you will continue on and do that in the fall.
1: Yeah, so as Neil was showing um, on the website, there's a sign-up form. Actually, it's not online yet. Scott, one of the guys working very hard on this is making it, so it should be up soon. Okay. Um, and so if you want to join next session, uh, sign up.
0: Good, lovely session. Thanks, Jean-Michel, Thanks, Neil. P, David.
1: David Kay was cool.
0: Bye-bye.
1: Bye, everyone.